WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is episode 70. By the time you're hearing this, the final event of the 2021 WSL Championship Tours Australian leg, the Rip Curl Search Rotnest Island presented by Corona, may be wrapping up or has just wrapped. Uh, this event is stretching to nearly the end of its window and after a marathon Australian leg, which has yielded very interesting results for the world's best surfers that we'll look forward to unpacking on worldsurfleague.com and the WSL app in the coming weeks. If Rotnest is on right now, turn this off and check out the final day of competition and then come back. All right, episode 70. Today's guest is someone who, in short, is one of the few people responsible for the world's best surfing even happening in 2021. She is, as she puts it and prefers it, a behind-the-scenes individual, but make no mistake, she is an absolute institution within the surfing world and has led thoughtfully, passionately, and loyally as a believer in what surfing is and can be to so many people. She's headed the ASP, WSL North American region for decades. She actually hired me for my first job at the ASP way back in early 2006. And I personally owe her an unpayable debt for guiding me through the surfing world, which she has done unflinchingly to anyone willing to ask for years. She's a true blue hero of mine and many, many others. Please enjoy the lineup's conversation with Huntington Beach's Meg Bernardo. The good old clap, take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did, I wanted to be a world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? We can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once, let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. Let's talk to your boxes. The Meg Bernardo on the lineup. Thanks for joining us today, Meg. Oh, thank you, Dave, for asking me. I'm very honored, excited, and as I've told you, nervous. <laughs> I, I, I had to ask you multiple times. We've had world champions, big wave icons, founders. Everyone's quick to join, and and you were like, oh, I don't know if I, I don't know if people want to hear from me. And I'm like, please, please. Because I, you just named off a whole group that I definitely don't feel like I belong. So thank you so much. Of course you know? not. They're nobodies. <laughs> we're talking to you now. Oh man. <laughs> well, how, how are how are you doing today? Where are you today, and and who are you with? So I am doing really good today. It's a great day. I am in Huntington Beach, 
and I'm in my, I guess what they call now a she shed. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a, yeah, a little like eight by eight tough shed that I converted into an office probably almost 18 months ago. And so I got in here, cleaned out all the garden stuff, painted up the walls, you know, got my desk in here and I have a little TV so I can watch the webcast, you know, watch the events as they're happening. And it's nice and quiet. So I, I've got a similar setup here where it's in the garage and I yeah. like it because it's like the house is for living. And then I go in here to do the work where I think that and I imagine it's the same for you over the course of our careers, where it's like the personal and professional get so blurred, probably yeah. because of technology too, where I'm like, no, I just, if I'm in the kitchen, I want to be eating as opposed to like on my right. computer. And, and nobody wants to hear me talking and carrying on <laughs> business in the kitchen either. So, that's, that's right. you know, um, and it's also nice because I actually have to get out, walk outside of the house into the backyard you know, so you're getting out and getting dressed and kind of it's feeling like you're yeah, going right, yeah. somewhere. I'm going to put pants on today. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So, and so usually um, we have a little dog and Joey. And so he'll come out and he'll join me for a couple hours during the day and sit in the chair and then wanders off. So, you know, he keeps me, kind of gives me my little breaks during the day. That's good. Yeah. Well, Last week, we had Ian Cairns on the podcast, and in one of my finer planning moments, before we had him on, I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finally convince Meg to come on the following <laughs> week because her story will course correct any of uh, Kanga's bullshit that comes out on the, the podcast. Um, I'm kidding, of course, but, yeah. but, but related, actually, this worked out really well because in the conversation with Kanga, he did highlight the fact that Within the sport of surfing, and th these are his quotes, there's a lot of unrecognized, hardworking people and that nothing would even happen without these people. And these are people who have given their lives to the success of competitive surfing around the world. And he naturally listed you as one of those people. And I, and I love that. Wow. Yeah, that's nice. And well, yes, we go way back. <laughs> so uh, I'm here today because of Ian and PT. So well, I'll, I do want to get to that, but but before we get to where you started um, at the then ASP, for listeners that are unfamiliar, Meg, can you outline your current role at the WSL and and what the day to day like is in that role? Sure. So I am um, considered the WSL North American Regional Manager. So. Fits as, on a business card, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> so as that, um, you know, the WSL has various regions uh, that oversee like the QS juniors and those competition levels. So for North America, we actually, our territory is Canada through Panama. And then, of course, like Puerto Rico, we take Barbados you know, we split up some of that Caribbean, like with the European office. Uh, Martinique, for instance, is considered under the European sanctioning jurisdiction. Mm. Um, we're actually, we have some interest from the Dominican Republic, you know, coming our way and, you know, just Jamaica, different places like that. So we have quite a big territory. And with that, surfers that are living in those uh, countries and Hawaii, of course, is its own region. So we're we're mainland U.S. Mm. Um, but then then the surfers sign up. You know, they register under a particular region. So anybody living in those places would be North America, and then they fall under our like regional rankings, and kind of can come to us with any problems. Uh, their entries and you know we get uh, you've been in the <laughs> All office sorts with, of problems. we yeah. work together so so you you know you kind of know that whole span of just about anything that we get thrown at us but um, basically we're more of a sanctioning office uh, there are some like Hawaii that does a lot of production of their events but most of our events are licensed out so we work with those licensees, those contest directors, some of the sponsors, and just try to put together a QS tour. 
And you mentioned that I have worked in that office, um, but you you hired me back in uh, <laughs> 2006, I think was it was. 2006, uh, probably, yeah. Five or six is all blurry for me, but yeah. I remember I I had I was still working at the surf shop and I was freelancing for Surfing Magazine, and then I took a media unpaid telecommute media internship for uh, Melissa Buckley at right. what was then ASP International, and yeah, and I was like, this will be good on the resume, and um, and then she's like, well, hey, we're going to create this position at ASP North America, and you have to interview, but like Meg's great, and you'll get along, and I remember going in for the interview, and I don't remember if you remember it or what you thought of me, but I was very like impressed, and uh, I was excited. Yeah, no, it was great, and in fact, I'm thinking we were probably over on Florida Street in Huntington Beach, like off of Main Street. Maybe not. So had, I don't think so. We were still in the surf line. We were in the surf line oh, office we were in surf at that line. time. Okay. Because I remember it was just you. We had the two offices and we had you and Rachel Harris. And then I was okay. getting hired at a weird time when I can't remember what the other gentleman's name, but Chad Hochter, I think yeah. the other guy's name was Nick. We're on the way out. Oh. But then there was this weird, <laughs> oh they're like, gosh. are you replacing us and I'm like, I don't think so. And then Chad was like, you know, I know the governor and um, I, I walk around with a gun and I was like, this is great. <laughs> you know, yeah. Okay. So that's really, that's funny that you bring that up. So we had transitioned out of our relationship with Surfing America. That's right. Right. And Surfing America for everyone out there was the, it's the ISA sort of amateur organization Na in surfing in right the they're recognized as the national governing body mm -hmm. for and if you speak to fernando there really is no distinction between amateur and pro right but a lot, lot of a lot of blurred for, lines with that for I'm our sure. purposes we still say you know you're either winning money or you're not you mm. know you're you're surfing for trophies or for whatever right so sure. i was down at a u.s open talking to sean collins and lane beachley up in the area, we're chatting away, and Sean was asking me something about our our office arrangements, and I told him where we were, and we had just uh, recently taken the ASP regional license back to ASP International, mm -hmm. and so with that, we were saying, you know, this is probably a good idea if we're looking for a new place, a good time to just kind of separate ourselves. Right. And, you know, and Sean was like, hmm, that's interesting, you know. Hmm. So we go <laughs> off right. our separate ways, right? And like within the week, I get a call from him and he said, you know, we have a couple empty spaces here. What do you think about coming in and, you know, you can sublet from us? And I was just, oh, you know, because they're right there, corner yeah. of Main Street and PCH, third floor, looking out at the pier. And I said, it couldn't be better. You know, so so we had quite a few years with Surfline, and and that was really very generous of him to offer. World's slowest elevator in that office building. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> so, yeah. They have people, put people, in new we elevators. People would wait for twenty or thirty minutes just to go three floors. You know, I got caught in there one day. Oh no, you didn't. Oh. You were just on your way. That's how long it took. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. seriously, it all went dark, and for like twenty <laughs> minutes, I'm just standing there thinking, "Oh, I'm never going to get out of this." It's just horrifying, you know. This is this is how it ends. There was all the signals. <laughs> I knew this is my fault. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, let's let's go back to how how you got started. Where 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 were you born and raised? Was it Huntington Beach, or did you move there? No. So I was born and raised in Broadview Heights, Ohio, which is just outside of Cleveland, and in a pretty well. To give you an example, we had like three acres of property with all the back was woods that backed up to neighbors that had like 22 acres and somebody that had a lake on the other side. And I had a horse and we had, you know, all these things, ducks and all this stuff. And um, so that was kind of my upbringing. It, it wasn't like hick or anything, you know, but it was, <laughs> it was definitely open space and just very being involved with nature and outside and everything. And, and, and when did you guys move to Huntington Beach and, and for what reason? So my two sisters are much older than me and my aunt 
is out, was out here in California. And both of my sisters, when they turned 18, moved out to California. So I was about, thir- I had just turned 13. And my parents were saying, you know, let's, we really want to get to California. That's where our family is. My parents had been out here in the 50s. My dad was a truck driver and he was able to get a transfer with the company. And so everything just sort of aligned. So we came out here with my grandmother. And so the four of us moved to Huntington Beach. And and I presume the horse didn't make it out with you, but was no. that like a, a was that like a bridge for you to be like, well, I all right, dad, I'm gonna take up surfing then. Yeah. Well, you know, coming here again at 13, beginning of summer, like literally I got out of seventh grade and the next day the rider truck was filled up in the driveway and we hit the road. And we got here and the dog that we brought immediately ran away. We never found him, <laughs> never showed up at, a, at, at the pound or anything. And back to Ohio. Yeah, probably. And you know, I had to, at that age, coming in to a whole new place and trying to make friends was really difficult. You know, you'd Mm. think you'd be really excited to move to California. And I was just not excited at all because I was thinking, you know, what, this is hard, (laughs) you know? So, so for me, I um, really liked going to the beach, you know, because it, uh, we live in, in a tract homing area, you know, with it's your house and it's the walls. And so going to the (laughs) beach, looks like the next house. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So going to the beach was just a great escape because there's no boundaries. It's wide open. It's fresh air. And so, you know, going there all the time and seeing people surfing guys, mainly at that time, there weren't quite many girls out there, but I just really wanted to do that. So it it's funny because I, I there's a lot of parallels like I grew up in suburban Orange County mostly. But that 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 was a huge draw for me, too, where I'm like, oh, this is not the beach and the ocean are not curated or there's not really guardrails. This, this is exciting. This yeah. is like just something just more interesting than where I came from. Right. Yeah. And my mom really loved the ocean, but she wasn't a good swimmer. So that whole, whereas my dad really, you know, he loved swimming. You know, we always stopped it when we'd come across country, even in the summer times to visit my sisters, you know, four o'clock, you check into the Howard Johnson that has the pool and you go swimming, you know, that was kind of your reward for the long day on the road. But my mom wasn't really comfortable with that. Mm. So she was very instrumental in getting me on the right path. And this would have been, what, so I'm guessing like 1970s, 1980s, and you you enrolled in Huntington Beach High School. Is that right? Yeah, right. So yeah, so it was like 78, 79. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And what, and, and you've been, you've been sort of a scion of that community ever since. Like what, what are sort of the, the huge changes between you know, that time in Huntington and now from, from your perspective and what are, what, what's maybe one or two things that have like remained the same the whole time? Main street, big change, main street, still kind of the same. I mean, Mm. in terms of when I was growing up down there, it was primarily, you know, like your surf shops and there were apartment buildings that people, you know, lived above in there and just really community feeling you know, and now, of course, they've redone everything and you've got four levels of uh, retail and offices. So that part of it and restaurants, you know, the surf shops now have kind of gone off onto the more the side streets or or just disappeared, really. Well, I'm glad you said that because it's it's really interesting. I was having a conversation with Pat O'Connell the other day and we're just bullshitting about something. But we were talking about, you know, the cultural value and identity of Orange County and how it, it in, a, in a huge way, like globally, what, what people's perspective could be and, and is in some respects is, is surf culture, right? Mm-hmm. Because of the industry. But 
it, it's this funny thing where, you know, we were talking about the Paskowitz family and we were talking about, um, God, I can't remember the name, but just a couple of, a, which probably proves my point for me, a couple of like major heavy hitters from like the 70s and 80s in the surfing world who have been completely disconnected. And I see, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, the, the industry didn't really take those people or those mm -hmm. surf shops or those board builders and integrate them into the mainstream success in a way that would have retained that mm -hmm. connective tissue, right? When you're right. kind of presenting Orange County to the world. And in a lot of ways, it's like those people who inspired the people who built the surf industry probably can't afford to live in Orange County anymore, yeah. you know, or run their surf shop, which is, is sad in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is we we'd go to the beach during the summer and it, during the day, at some point, you'd always go up onto Main Street and you'd check in at either, you know, Sunline Surfboards or Carl Hayward mm -hmm. Surfboards because somebody you knew was working and you'd right. just go and hang out, you know, or you'd, yeah, just go spend some time and then you'd head back down to the beach and, you know, go for a swim and that sort of stuff. And it was just very... I don't, I don't know. I don't really see that now downtown so much, you know, it's, it is no. geared toward say the tourist. Right. Um, it's funny though, because the tourists are there because they want the sort of, it's all, it's come full circle, right? They yeah. want the authentic surfing experience. It's like, Hey, you could have kept everyone around. It would have been right. better for everybody. Right. You mentioned, um, when you were getting into surfing, there weren't a lot of women who did it. Mm -hmm. Was that, I'm wondering, oh, two things. Was that, did that ever intimidate you? And then second question was, do you think that if it didn't, or even if it didn't, you persevered, did the fact that you came from Ohio and had a bit of an outsider's perspective help you kind of get through that? Yeah, I, I'd say it definitely I was intimidated, you know, because you'd kind of, kind of find a break that was very uncrowded, you know, you'd paddle out. And by the time you got there, you're usually surrounded by a bunch of guys just hassling you know, sure, and, yeah. and I was never any good, believe me, you know what I mean? I could just get myself out there and, but, and, and actually that's where, um, my mom came in to play because she saw, uh, an ad in the register for surf classes that were being mm. offered down in Newport. And, um, she said to me, yeah, it's, it's these couple guys. Do you know who they are? It's, uh, Peter Townend and Ian Cans. <laughs> and I was just like, Wait, what? What did you say? And <laughs> and I ran upstairs and I got, you know, my surfer and my surfing magazines because I used to, you know, beggar for money to get both of those and clip out, have stuff all over my closet doors <laughs> and stuff. And and I showed her, you know, PT at the time, I think, was rated number one in the surfer poll. And mm. Ian would have been right up there, too, because they were up there right. in the top five of the ratings at the time, at the IPS ratings. And I said, this is them, mom, that's them, you know? And so, so she called up two of my girlfriend's parents and said, look, I'm going to put Meg in this class. Will you, you know, put your girls in? And they said, yeah. So my, my that's two awesome. friends, yeah, Julie, Kim and I went in and then they brought PT and Ian brought in Carl Hayward, you know, who had his shop yeah. right down there on main street to, to come in for the week that we had this surf class and go out and, you know, surf with us and, and all that. So it was really fantastic. It was unbelievable. Were, were there other girls that did the class with you or were you um, the only three? Yeah, no, there were a couple other girls. And in okay. fact, even um, Alyssa Schwartzstein and her dad oh, wow. had, you know, paddled out with us because Alyssa, you know, was, at, was actually at surfing and competing on NSSA uh, rankings and events and stuff. And so... Uh, PT and Ian were very good about inviting people to come in and to speak to the group, you know, whether it was about marine safety or mm. Jericho Poplar came in one day. And of course she was, you know, a known pro woman. So it was really a nice, they, they had it dialed in. Exactly. Yeah. This sounds like an amazing school. So PT and yeah. Kanga were actually there and they had like coursework and instruction and everything yeah. in between them, you know, competing for world titles. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you'd spend a little bit of time with them going over that stuff with you. And then, then you'd go out to the water and they set up for us to go over and uh, Carl shaped a board and kind of told us all about board building and 
it was really good. <laughs> so, so you meet PT and Kanga then, which I think you said is 1980. And then if I'm correct, two years later, you started working for them at their, yeah. at sports and media services, their, exactly. their marketing company. Yeah. How, how, how old were you then? And how did, how did that job come about between the surf school and, and taking yeah. it? So I used to volunteer for just about any surf thing that was in town. So we had the Caton and uh, one of the guys on our team, George Lambert, his dad uh, knew Nancy Caton. He was the contest director. So you know, it's like, oh, George, I want to work at the, you know, Caton. And of course it was all volunteer, right? So hmm. I think at that, I was what you called a scribe where you <laughs> <Sure>. sat, <laughs> you sat at the feet of the judges and they'd call their scores down and, you know, you'd mark them down for them. And of course, PT and Ian were around all of these events and they were involved with the NSSA. And mm-hmm. so uh, our shop one of the shop teachers at Huntington was also the surf coach, Rob Hill. And so my sophomore year, I went up to Rob and I said, Hey, you know, do you need anybody to keep score, tabulate, do anything, you know? (laughs) And I, you know, he said, yeah, absolutely. So in that, I kind of just kept running into PT and Ian and Ian's wife, Pat, and they were doing Mm -hmm. sports and media services and the NSSA. And so um, they said, oh, well, we could use some help. So after school, because they live downtown on California Street, Pat and Ian, I'd go in after school and we'd sit on the front lawn and fold newsletters or stuff envelopes for memberships or just whatever. I'd answer phones. And so my senior year, which was 82, I was Mm. I was taking. I really had all my credits and I had extra credits and all this. So I was getting out of school by like noon. And uh, they said, so would you actually like to get paid for this? I said, really? <laughs> You're like, I'm not getting paid. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, I, I would love it. That would be fantastic. So, yeah. So that was my, that's how I fell into the job. Well, and that's a really interesting time too, right? Because in 82, 83, Kanga was you know, as, as, as the, the, the bards tell it, organizing his surfer led coup to mm-hmm. transition, you know, the global sport from the IPS to the ASP. Were you getting exposed to any of that working with him? Well, yeah, for sure. Because it really, it was Ian, PT, Pat and me. Mm-hmm. So, and, and they decided to get an office. So our first office was on Gothard and Warner in Huntington beach and they actually wound up moving into a condo right up there too. So then we were kind of in this office position and that's when Ian was pitching the idea of the OP Pro. So, yep. and I haven't had a chance to listen to Ian's podcast, so I don't know. I <laughs> tell mean, this, the truth, Meg, yeah, tell, no, tell so us I mean, what really happened. No, so this is really, it, this is coming from, from my perspective and what I was seeing. Sure, yeah, of and, course, and, it's you know, good disclaimer, happened. it's good, yeah. Right, yeah. Um, but anyway, and and PT was doing a lot with, with Surfing Magazine at the time. So, mm. you know, but we were also producing different events. And, and I think like it became like the Hang 10 series and Tropics mm. and different things. So, so there, and the NSSA. So there's already this um, foundation of events, you know, event structure and all of that. So, yeah, so Ian pitched the idea of this event that OP took on. And so mm. 82 was the first OP pro. Right. And yeah, so what, I got what to, time, what timing for you? <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so obviously then I was put to work, you know, I was running the scores, getting them from the judges and bringing them down for tabulation so that they could announce them right away uh, to the announcers, which was kind of a new thing. Right. And that role evolved into a few years later, you, you did become operations director for the ASP and you, you were effectively running the tour out of Huntington beach. Is that right? Yeah. 86, 86. So, so Ian resigned in, in Mm -hmm. 86 and went back to Australia 
And mm. then that's when Graham Cassidy, Sid, was put in as executive director. And he was in Australia and still, you know, a journalist and editor, right, for the Sydney Morning Herald. Sure. And he had, Jill Hummelstead was working for him. So basically, the office had, in a sense, moved to Australia because, right. you know, as the executive director, he was there. And we were really kind of closing up operations. And as to say, the director then was Carolyn Adams, who mm -hmm. came from Texas. So these kind of elements of what fell underneath the sports and media services umbrella were being kind of dispersed. And right. I got a call from Peter Burness, who was the president of ASP from South Africa. Mm -hmm. And he says, uh, what would you think about keeping an office open there? And, you know, you working with Sid and Jill and, you know, we, we kind of have a foothold now in the United States and or in, in West Coast, at least. And so we kind of like to keep that momentum going. And I think Al was even coming through. Al Hunt was coming through at the time and he talked to me about it. And, you know, he said, it makes sense. And I said, yeah, I, I really don't want to go anywhere. I'd like to stay. <laughs> so... We've all been seduced by Al Hunt at one point or another. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So for a long time, we still shared the office with the NSA. Right. And, um, and in that time, we had hired Dory Payne. Mm. And, you know, the workload was huge because right. you had Al, who was actually traveling around and going to events as a tour manager. And... You know, you had Sid and Jill handling things in Australia, and you had your head judge, who maybe was Fuxi at the time. And um, mm -hmm. but as, actually, as administrative office staff, there was like three people. And that, that's what always shocked me. Like when I <laughs> even when I took the the internship, I'm like, it's a global company. I'll be conservative. There's probably like a couple hundred people that work there, and then there's like five. You <laughs> yeah, know, and you're right? Like, you're like, right. wait, what? Like, how much work are we supposed to do here? Yeah, <laughs> it's like, like a few of us doing it. It so, must have been pretty uh, wild west in those days too. Just sort of like running and gunning and being on tour. And I mean, it, 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 this came up a little bit with with Ian Cans, and it's come up with Randy and, and Bugs and everyone. Where it's like you know, you're, you're speaking something into being, you know, kind of the sport of professional surfing and you're, you're cleaving your way into a business that didn't exist before. And so yeah. you're, you're really pushing it in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, it was, we, um, we kind of pirated Dory away from the NSSA. And standard and, practice. Yeah. And so, and we, we really, you know, worked very well together. So, yeah. So that was, yeah, some really groundbreaking times, I guess, because things were always changing. You know, you'd still, go to meetings. Still feels that way, right? Yeah, <laughs> but you'd go to a board meeting and, and you knew that there was going to be a hundred rule changes right. coming into play. And, you know, and from year to year, you didn't know if an, if an event didn't come back on the tour, there was no money. You know, it was just, yeah. <laughs> so a lot, a lot of, I mean, and even it's funny, right? Cause that's, that's been my experience for 15 years too. And I think something we're all, I guess sort of my, my responsibility. So if I don't do it, I'm in trouble, but <laughs> like, like kind of removing that tail wagging the dog of like, we need an event. We'll do whatever. We'll kind of Frankenstein the whole thing together to like, we're going to be really deliberate about what this is and, and, and institutionalize like this event's going to be here hopefully forever. This is how we're going to crown world champs right. hopefully forever. And it's how we're going to qualify people. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can only imagine what it was like in the eighties and nineties because it would have been even more kind of like foundation building in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny because really like within that first say 10 years of ASP, it, we were growing so fast you know, so many surfers were wanting to get into events and we were getting a lot of events on the tour. But and I remember Dory even saying then she goes, man, wouldn't it be great if just somebody had a lot of money and just came in and took this all over and and we could actually work under 
kind of a, a, a specific, you know, guidelines. Direction, and, yeah. yeah. Yeah, direction, yeah. instead of kind of thinking, oh, the next board meeting's coming up, I wonder what this <laughs> is going to mean, you know. That's right. So. Well, it's funny too, right, because... And, and it's one of those things that uh, in my exposure to it has been a real challenge, which is that like surfing means different things in different countries, right? So like mm-hmm. in Australia, you've got the government like bidding to bring events to their different beaches, you know, they're paying right. and they're, they're, you know, they're, they're competing against each other because it's more of an established mainstream sport. And then, you know, in the U S it's, it's not so much the opposite, but that doesn't happen, you know, mm-hmm. where, right. where you're like, Hey, look, we, you know, you're having to kind of campaign to bring an event to this beach because Absolutely. of all these advantages. But then that one through line of, you know, whether it's rabbits, conception of the dream tour or just the idea of like we're going to get the best surfers we can find and put them in the best waves we can find and we're going to create the conditions for something special is so potent that you do get tens of thousands of kids around the world they're like i got to get into the event yeah i got i got to do this and behind the scenes we're all going that's great we really need to stabilize this because it's like we can't accommodate everybody we can't accommodate the demand yeah i mean even even now, you know, mm. depending on where an event is located, Huntington Beach, for example, you right. know, we've got like the Jacks Pro, um, which is a QS 1000, but 2019, because we didn't have it last year, right? you know, we had probably 50 alternates, right? you know, so yeah, definitely there's a demand. <laughs> So, so, so through the nineties and early oddies, can you walk us through, I know there's been, there's so many changes to the organization, but just your role in particular and, and how that evolved and maybe it didn't, maybe it kind of stayed constant mm-hmm. throughout, but what were kind of some of the, the drum beats for you through, through the nineties and early oddies? Yeah. So I think as we kind of, you know, did hire on a couple more people and there were the regional offices really started to get some substance. You know, it started out more as regional reps, and then Mm -hmm. we actually had offices. There was a period of time when I handled the banquet, you know, I mean, along with other things, that was like a really big part, because that took months to organize when we were finishing in Hawaii. So, you know, I'd go over, say, for November, December, and it was like from top to bottom, putting out invitations to, mm. you know, getting the centerpieces and helping to write the script and everything. So, you know, it was a pretty big job that that banquet was 400 people black tie. Right. So it was, you know, there was that. Um, and then I was kind of like special events, maybe the specialty events too, if we had some of those, I'd sort of, my attention would be turned towards those. And as we did develop the regional offices, there was a period where that was my baby, let's say, you know, and I Mm. helped with like the manuals for regional offices and event manuals, which in fact, I did it in that event manual this last summer or (laughs) beginning of the year, I guess. So, you know, so kind of just wherever it seemed like we needed to go <laughs> right or i kind of just morphed into that maybe because i had been around for a while so it was easier for me to kind of step in and and start that process well it's it's interesting you say that too cuz i i feel like i've experienced it probably like a fraction of what you have too which it's it, it is such a specialized sport, culture, community, business that time and experience um, really makes you like a very valuable generalist in a lot of ways where mm-hmm. they're like, we need you to work on this. We need you to work on that. We need you to do this because you do have that perspective because you've sat at c- that kind of nexus point between a lot of different phases and a lot of different kind of parts of the company. Um, I always really, I, I loved the banquet, the banquet. Um, I still do. I yeah. think we changed it. We called it the WSL awards or whatever. Um, but you know, it's one of those things that I at one point we're like, we're going to make this commercial. We're going to sell tickets. We're going to broadcast yeah. it, et cetera, et cetera. 
And it kind of moved into this like entertainment based thing where there was like music acts and all this stuff. And it was interesting. It's cool. But I, my favorite part about it was kind of what you said, where it's like the singular night of the year where you take Mm -hmm. literally the best surfers on the planet and you put them all in one place and you put them in black ties. And it's almost, there's an air of like sacredness to it Mm -hmm. because and, and I kind of think it's my personal opinion. I don't get everything I want at the company. But, like, I always liked not having the other things, you know, not mm-hmm. having the webcast, not having the entertainment, um, unless it was kind of private, because it it is kind of a special thing. And there's sort of an exclusiveness to it that makes it cool. Yeah. Yeah. Those were a lot of fun. And I I have some photo albums that I go back through and I look at and... And it's funny because that my first trip to Australia, Sid brought me over because we were going to be trans, transferring from Australia to Hawaii. And mm. so, you know, he said, this is going to kind of be your job now. So I right. attended the banquet, kind of, you know, got to see what their goal was and what their vision of it would be and, you know, make it happen in Hawaii. So, you know, one of the things that um, I will I will always be indebted to you for is that same as what I just kind of talked about, you know, is that it's such a specialized, unique community and it can feel exclusive just because there's so much history and background between different entities and surfers and brands and events and organizers and et cetera. You were just always so, so kind and giving you were my guide in a lot of ways where, you know, I'd be like, I got this email from this person and you'd be like, here's the backstory on that person. I'm like, thank you so much. I would have for sure said the wrong thing or asked for the wrong thing. And I just, yeah, I don't know. I, I just, I just feel like that was always the, the, so much of what you do is intangibly, but also what's the word like priceless, intangibly mm-hmm. priceless is what I'm, I'm getting at. Just because every time I come to the office, there's some, mega figure from the surfing world, whether it's, you know, Bob McKnight or like, you know, um, Shane Horan or somebody's in there and kind of having tea with Meg Bernardo because they have to. (laughs) Well, thank you, Dave. That's nice. And I really had very good mentors, you know, I I mean, going back to, to like Pat Cans, she just, Mm. and funny because she was a school teacher, you know, when they were in Australia and she just, had that way about her of just making you feel comfortable and sort of teaching you the ropes on stuff. And so she really helped me to navigate my way around an office and how to deal with people, you know, the importance of just getting back to somebody, even if you say, I don't know, (laughs) just call them back, you know, or just send them an email and say, I don't know. But I, I'll put I, you on my I, list. <laughs> I think telling people I don't know, but I'll work it out is the most valuable thing you can do right <laughs> yeah. now. Because everyone else just pretends like they do, where it's like, hey, you know, I, I, we don't know everything. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things you said that struck me, which I think is important for everyone listening, because I'm sure you get asked about it a lot, too, where, you know, it is a really from the outside and also from the inside, let's be honest, a very desirable business to work in and a lifestyle. And what we do is really, really cool. I get asked all the time, like, well, how, how do, how do I get in and how do I get to where you got? And when she's like, I'm like, well, you know, just look at a pinball machine and then <laughs> meditate on that. Right. But, but like, you know, what I do tell them is like, whatever you want to do, like be willing to do it for free if you're passionate about it, which is what you did. You know, yeah. like you, you said, I just want to be involved. And, you know, I, I did the same, you know, I, I said, oh, I just want to be involved. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to do this because I, I think it's important. And, I think that opens up even even after you start getting paid and, you know, or whatever we get paid is it like that kind of attitude helps and it helps open a lot of doors because yeah. you're down for the cause and you're you're respectful to other people and you want to hear about it. Yeah. And that is so true because I do. I get calls from people. I get emails asking the same thing and they send in these resumes, you know, that on paper are really wonderful. And they're, they're like, how did you know? what did you do? How did you, and I tell him, you know, just go down and look down the list and see where there's a, where there's a contest, you know, you're from the East coast, you know, call up the ESA, see what's going on this weekend and go spend some time and help out. You will be 
so just amazed at the people that you meet down there, the parents, the kids that are surfing, the staff that are working, because everybody's there because they love the sport. They love the sport. They love the beach. And they will usually welcome you. They'll welcome the help for sure. <laughs> you <laughs> know, yeah. if you're volunteering, it's it's pretty much it's, there's always a box to carry. I found right. at surf contests, right? So. But that's how you start just meeting people, and then you start getting invited to things, and they start knowing you and saying, "Hey, this person, you know, wants to help out," and it it just keeps kind of rolling right along to possibly where you want to be. Yeah. We got a couple more topics to get to, but first we're going to take a quick break to get a word in from our sponsors. WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. When we were acquired, you mentioned before, I think it was, we were saying we were working with Dory, um, where you're like, geez, it would be great to kind of consolidate everything under one umbrella uh, someday. And that happened. Um, At the end of 2012, we were acquired and I was working, geez, I don't remember what my position was at the time, international media director or something. Um, You were heading up the North American region. Right. What was the, do you remember the first time you were exposed to the idea that we'd be acquired? You know, we kind of heard some rumblings about it. And I think it was Richard Grauman mm-hmm. who said, hey, we're setting up this, this meeting. And it was at one of the hotels. Now, I can't remember if it was the Hyatt or the Hilton, but, you know, kind of in the banquet room. And, and kind of all the major stakeholders were invited and surfers and, you know, Randy Rarick and Claw and like Bob McKnight, everybody. Right. And Mm -hmm. there was the presentation. Were you, were you there? I, I was, so I was at the one on the gold coast. Okay. I'm sure I, actually, you know, I'm sure I was at this one too. I just kind of dragged a lot of them. Yeah. But there were, uh, like Paul Speaker was there and Dirk was there and, a few other gentlemen that they had with them and they each got up and sort of spoke about their involvement with surfing Mm -hmm. and their vision of how they saw things could, you know, what direction it could go in. And, Mm -hmm. and it was really time, you know, I think the brands were at a point where they couldn't really sustain the tour. And, and I think we were all kind of feeling this, okay, if it's going to happen, this is, this is a great time to, for it to happen. 
Yeah, that's that's how I remember it too. Because I remember, I actually remember really early on, before, well before that, when I was working on the website. This would have been, I don't know, like two thousand seven, maybe. And we started running like Google Analytics for the website. We didn't have control of the webcast then, but we're like, well, the web, the website, ASPWorldTour.com, which I th- still think is great, um, or was great. Uh, we're like, well, we'll be the hub because at the time, of course, you had 10 CT events, you had 10 different websites because there was no right. aggregated space. And we're like, well, we'll be the hub. So we kind of created that. And I started running the analytics during event windows and then giving them to my counterpart at Quicksilver or Billabong or whoever. Right. And I, I vividly remember doing this with my counterpart at Quicksilver the first time. I said, hey, here's the web traffic for the Quicksilver Pro Gold Coast on ASPWorldTour.com. Pretty good. And and next year, we'll look at it and see if we did better or worse. And my counterpart looked at me and went, this is great. Uh, my boss does not give a shit at all. <laughs> like, there's, there's no... There's no PL, there's no ROI. All we talk about at Quicksilver is let's do whatever Billabong did mm. and then do that plus this. And mm. there was this as kind of irresponsible, it's good for the fans, I guess, proliferation of service because everyone was doing so well. But as you said, uh, global financial crisis of 2008, a lot of those brands then had to take a hard look at what they were spending their money on. And the tour at that point was unsustainable. Yeah. And I remember we had Brody was our CEO. He was our mm-hmm. CEO and I started in 2005, yeah. uh, six, And then he left in 2011. And then 2012, we had the management committee. We didn't have a CEO. Um, <laughs> it was just sort of three tiger sharks that were eating each other constantly. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, as a story for another. See, time. I was I was in the North America, yeah, my little world, just, my region, so I didn't. <laughs> this is a nice no, aquarium. That was yeah. the other aquarium sucked. Uh, no, it was fine. I, I kid. It was all funny, but I do remember going to that meeting. I think the first meeting I went to was on the Gold Coast, and we got the same presentation. And it was interesting, right? Because the ownership structure of the sport before then was under the ASP model, which was own 50% by the surfers and then 50% by the event licensees. And the event licensees were basically exclusively endemic brands who more often than not also sponsored the representatives on the surfer side. So that's another conflict of interest we can go down another time. Um, But I I remember, this is a, a bit of a funny story, having the Trestles event in 2012 and we were on site and for whatever reason, the little box that Renato Hickel and I were working in was so narrow, it would have been about two feet wide and like eight feet deep. Yeah. And and Renato called me on the phone and he's like, hey, uh, Terry Hardy and Natasha Ziff and Paul Speaker want to talk to you and I. And I'm like, okay. And so I come in and, and we're sitting in what we could, the closest we can make a circle in like our little crappy folding chairs. But yeah. it was so narrow that all of our knees were touching each other. <laughs> And, oh, man. That's and, gotta be so Paul, awkward. Like, it, yeah, and it was. It, and Paul went into this pitch, um, which I'd heard. And the funny thing was, is like all the things they wanted to do were things we've been saying needed to happen for a long time. Yes, like, right. Aggregate everything under an umbrella, like blah blah blah. And so you know, he's you know, Paul could talk, and he was like talking for like twenty minutes, and then he's like, "God, oh, geez, I've been talking too much. Like, what do you guys think?" And like Renata looked at me, and I looked at him, and he's like, "Well, what do you think, Dave?" And I said, "I said, look." All that sounds great. We don't have any influence. Like, <laughs> like we'll say, you I, I, ho- I hope you get people. it, and, I, and I, I hope you get it, and I hope you keep us around. But like, what you want to do, right on, man. Like, we're into it. But uh, that's that how is I remember so it happening. True, right? Yeah, I can <laughs> totally see that happening because it's true, right? <laughs> you, Look at us. Like we, we, made, we survived. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I do. It's been. It was interesting, right? Because a lot of the things they did right away were like immediate improvements. We're mm-hmm. like, hey, all the what right. we're standardizing, all the webcasts, and we're doing all these things. And it's been really, really interesting in that I think we it allowed us to test a bunch of different things, right? Where we go, okay, we're going to go out and we'll work with the big wave community, or we're going to you know acquire the Kelly Slater Wave mm-hmm. Company, or we'll develop an ocean health advocacy program. All these really rad things that are kind of built on top of that engine of the sport. But that to me feels like it's the through line is that people still come back because they're like, I want to see world champions, you know? And I think 
if anything, the pandemics really helped us refocus back in on that and making sure that that how we do that and that framework is, you know, as exciting as possible and also as stable as possible. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And the changes to come about are good. Yeah, I think so. And, and one of those is obviously the idea of a regional QS system, mm-hmm. um, which from your standpoint, I wanted to get kind of your un, unvarnished thoughts on the idea being for listeners that, you know, moving forward in, in 22 and beyond, we'll have our, our championship tour that will determine the top five who qualify for the WSL finals, where we'll determine our world champs. There'll be an intermediary tier called the Challenger Series that will be a collective of surfers from all of our seven regions who compete across eight events for a spot on the following season's uh, championship tour. And then to get to the Challenger Series, we've regionalized the QS, meaning that if you're a North American surfer, you can compete close to home and surf on a, hopefully, a very strong domestic tour. And same, if you're an Australian, you can compete on your own domestic tour and, you know, Brazilian, et cetera, and kind of build up your competitive chops and your seeding before you get to the Challenger Series, which will be an international tour. So based on your background and experience, I wanted to to get your thoughts on what you think of that, that change for the region. Yeah, um, I definitely think that the move to a more definite three-tier system is really good because it makes sense because we do have so many wanting to compete to get to the CT that you kind of have to break it up a bit, you know, get a level in there. And I can't tell you how many people refer back to, do you remember the Bud Surf Tour days? Oh, I'm glad you brought it up because it's in my notes. (laughs) Okay. But, you know, that's referenced a lot. And for maybe the younger generation or newer listeners, you know, they may not be familiar with that. But, and maybe Ian spoke about it. But, Mm. you know, the Bud Surf Tour was really brought us a United States champion. Mm -hmm. Um, It was, you know, easy to understand and follow. You kind of, you know, had these points that were going around. You had Santa Cruz, you had some on the East Coast. It was just a really good model. So in a sense, we're kind of getting back to that in in terms of these regional tours. And we're, we're building or we will be able to build regional stars, mm-hmm. you know, and, and ones for people to get behind and follow. I think, and this is going to be another situation where things will be tweaked as we, you know, kind of go through it, right? Like we'll mm. get it into play and we may see mm, that kind of doesn't really work too good for maybe right. seating or for qualification. And maybe we have to tweak it a little bit. Some of the things that we've talked about within our regions is that if you make every level, like your QS 1000, QS 3000, QS 5000, strictly for regional surfers, where is the desire for, say, Mm. a a brand or a sponsor or a promoter to go to that 5,000 level if you're really going to get the same surfers that you're going to get in a 1,000? Totally. You know, and so maybe, maybe you mix that up a little bit. You know, you say a certain percentage can be international for mm-hmm. a 3,000, a certain for five. And then, because the other thing is, is those that are competing out on the on the tour, they need the experience of travel and surfing particular breaks. And, yeah. you, you know, if you don't get out there and do it on a lower level, what happens when you get to the Challenger Series and you haven't really had, an, you know, that experience? You could get eaten up pretty easily. <laughs> That that's a really good point. I, the the thing that I love about it, and I love that you brought up the Bud Tour because I think that, like the Bud Tour made the momentum generation, you know, yeah. and and the Brazilian Storm came out of a like a, a very strong and 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 stable domestic tour in Brazil. You know, um, competitive practice breeds world champs, right? Mm-hmm. And that, and that's kind of the point. And and I think you're right, you know. And I think that if we can develop strong regional systems that you're going to have these sort of incubation areas where people 
I mean, you see it now, right? And it's it's mm-hmm. an interesting it's an interesting problem to look at and try to solve because it's not just the WSL. There's there's the industry and there's all sorts of things that play into it. But young kids, as you put it, kind of being thrust out into the world to compete, you know, against grown men and women on on the on the QS on an international system which is sometimes really problematic. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I'm, I personally, I'm really looking forward to doing it, but I think you're right. There'll be some tweaks along the way yeah. as, as we get it. I, up and I like the, the idea of the finals too, cause mm. that's, that's really exciting. You know, I, I don't know how all the surfers feel about it because if you have a shocking oh, they, day, they, 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 all, they all love it, no. <laughs> you know, but it's, it's great for fans, I think to follow that concept and see that, you know, and yeah, I think so too. I, I mentioned this when I think uh, Ian and I were talking about it last week and um, I, I, I've told the story a couple of times, but like I was initially skeptical because um, we've been talking about this for a long time, um, mostly from like a legitimacy standpoint. Mm-hmm. And then we had a meeting in Fiji a few years ago during the event where we brought in the world champs and kind of the, the people who had been runner up um, or were kind of in the mix and talked about it and to a person they were like this sounds great and and I, I was personally really surprised but then they had this interesting sort of champion psychology to the argument where they said look like when i win a world title i want to do it in the water and i want to do it against the next best person hmm. um as opposed to the system before which was cool but it was also a system in which you could have been in your hotel room or your locker room or whatever and the person who was still in the running against you goes down to a wild card or a lower seed in the event, and that's it. You know, you yeah. kind of won by default. And I thought that was really interesting. And I just like the idea of like, look, we're going to have it at a world-class wave, mm-hmm. and you're going to have to surf against the best surfers of the season. And whoever wins is going to be in, in kind of this amazing position of having done that. So yeah. I, I think it's going to be cool too. Yeah, yeah exciting summer. Well, to close us out, we do have a few questions from the Instagram community. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask these. Uh, the first question is from Chris.Fowler.187 who asks, what's the strangest excuse a surfer has ever made for missing an event? (laughs) Um, okay. Seriously. I have heard my dog ate my passport, and so I missed my flight. <laughs> so that's fair, you know, right? Dog ate my homework. No, dog ate my passport. Yeah. I, I believe it. Okay, next one is uh, Krieg's Instagram, who asks, "What do you think of the commercialization of the WSL?" You know, I think, I think it's not as bad as maybe what we thought it it could be and with anything that's going to grow you mm. have to there's give and take you know and i think surfing's always wanted to keep itself so core you know and but right. i think it can stay authentic and still get out there and and it's really by keeping people involved that are passionate about the sport mm. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it, the, the funny thing is, is like, I think th- what people might deem as like commercializing the sport is like, well, we're, you know, this is this is what pays for the sport to keep happening. So it's sort of it's this or nothing kind of deal. And and I and at the end of the day, it's like it's a business like we, we right. want to make we want to drive revenue so we can keep creating this platform to watch world champions happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Last question from the Instagram community. Goof underscore diaries asks, who is the best character you've ever come across in surfing? The best character. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that's you've a come really, a few. <laughs> that's such a loaded question. Cause it, it's like, uh, you know, anyone from a surfer to a, to somebody coming by the office or, you know, promoter, uh, sure. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, right. I'd say, you know, for for some reason, Brad Gerlach comes to my mind, just okay. because, you know, he's a fantastic surfer. He always had something funny, a, a an interesting spin or take on something. wasn't afraid to 
get out there and say what he wants to say. And I actually haven't talked to Brad in, in several years, but every time I do, he's got such a charismatic personality that, you know, I don't know if that really falls into the question that he's asking because <laughs> it's not in a bad way. It's just in a really, uh, it's in a good way, you know? Yeah. Brad's going to listen to this and be like, I know some of the people that she's met. Like, well, I'm not that bad. <laughs> no, and I, that's what I mean. Not in a bad way, but yeah, I just yeah, think no, of I, somebody I that's like, just stands out as someone that, you know, that's a character. <laughs> I love it. Well, um, Meg Bernardo, thank you so much for what you do. Thank you for being my, my professional and personal guide in a lot of ways. And thank you for being my friend. And thanks for doing this podcast. Thank you, Dave. I look forward to many more good years. Me too. So that's it. That's the lineups conversation with Meg Bernardo. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. And another heartfelt thank you to Meg for leading us and inspiring us for decades. This episode is produced by Ryan Fawcett with art direction by Jason Penning. Thanks to both of them and thanks to our sponsors. We appreciate their support. The lineup acknowledges that it's recorded and produced on the ancestral lands of the Chumash, the Kishtavagnar, and the Tongva Native American people. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are, and we'll see you next Tuesday.